Welcome to Franciscan University of Steubenville's Distance Education Program, a series of lectures bringing the classroom to you. For the next several weeks, this radio station, in cooperation with Franciscan University of Steubenville, will present a course on the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. Your professor, Father Giles Dimmick, a Dominican priest, has 29 years of teaching experience and is currently chairman of the theology department at Franciscan University of Steubenville. For more information on Franciscan University of Steubenville's distance education program, call 1-800-446-8336. Or, from outside of the United States, call 614-283-6517. And now, here's Father Giles Dimmick with this week's lecture on the Sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, now we're talking about uh, sacramental institution. Okay, the Council of Trent, when the Protestants were denying that certain uh, sacraments were indeed sacraments, because our Protestant brethren hold for mostly how many? Two. Okay, for the in general, for the most part, two. And so that meant that they were wiping out five. Okay. So the Council of Trent, which is the uh, council that dealt with uh, the Protestant Reformation, said very clearly, there are seven sacraments and that they are all instituted by Christ. And if you don't believe that, anathema sit. Let you be anathema, which means uh, let that person be condemned. Anathema is a Greek term. Now... The Council of Trent does not say, and this is a really key point, that one must hold that Christ instituted all of the sacraments directly. They're all instituted by Christ, by his will. But see, there's the whole question. Can we find, and we've talked about this, the explicit institution of each sacrament in the scriptures? Well, you might say, and you'd be right, well, we're Catholic, and we don't hold for Scripture alone. That's true. But on the other hand, it would seem, for something so important as sacraments, that there ought to be some sort of reference in the Scripture. And indeed, there are for all of them. But one cannot find the precise institution of each of the sacraments in Scripture per se. So the point is... Trent doesn't say whether or not we have to hold that Christ uh, explicitly or that we know exactly when he did or whether or not he let it be known that this was his will and then uh, the apostles according to the times um, uh, sort of explicitated that. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas felt, uh, he thought, that Christ instituted them all seven sacraments as we know them now, although the church may have changed uh, the right sometime in the course of history. However, uh, all due respect to the angelic doctor, uh, who's my elder brother, nonetheless, we probably have a, a better knowledge of the evolution of sacramental rites than St. Thomas had in his day. Um, uh, in the Middle Ages, they weren't as interested, perhaps, in history as we are. And uh, many key texts, especially from the East, uh, from Syria, were not in their possession. So they didn't know, perhaps, as much about how liturgy has emerged and changed over the ages um, as we do. Some hold, and to some degree, 
This is Rahner's position, although we don't want to oversimplify, that Christ instituted a sevenfold sacramental grace. In other words, Christ wanted, or Christ said, let it be, that grace will come through me uh, in a certain fullness through rites that will emerge in the life of the church, okay, uh, leaving it pretty open-ended. That uh, a sevenfold grace implies what is seven, the number seven mean? Well, in Scripture, it means a fullness, okay? So there are seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit in fullness. A sevenfold sacramental grace would mean that Jesus Christ is the sacrament, as we've seen, and flowing from him is a fullness of grace through these various signs that in the course of time are determined by the church. Rahner would say that the sacrament explicitly instituted by Christ uh, is the church. Well, that's kind of interesting because some theologians, I don't agree with them, uh, Richard McBrien, for one, uh, isn't sure that Christ instituted the church. Uh, it's true that many of these things you're hard-pressed to find precisely in Scripture where he did that, but as Herr Dr. Schmaus, whose text I used to use in ecclesiology, points out, that there were certain key happenings that show that, in fact, he did that. One, that he gathered together the twelve. You wouldn't gather together the twelve if you didn't somehow expect that your teaching and your the kind of community life that you established weren't going to continue. Uh, he established the Eucharist very clearly as a communal sacrificial meal for his followers. Uh, he gave Peter a special role. Uh, in the, clearly that role was for the future. Um, he, uh, he sent the Holy Spirit to empower them. But Schmaus says all of those acts taken together suggest the continuity of a community which uh, they call themselves in the early church, they call themselves simply the church. Okay. So, see, what we're dealing with is can we, to some degree, divine Christ's intention uh, from reading the scriptures broadly? And in fact, more importantly, whether not so much can we divine, but rather is the church on the mark by celebrating these rites and rituals and believing that by practicing these signs, these rituals, that we are put in direct contact with Christ in these various uh, aspects of our lives, okay? And it seems to me that we can say so. Now, these are different theories as to how the sacraments might have been instituted. What he says, Rahner, the church is the sacraments that is explicitly instituted by Christ, but implicitly. In other words, that Christ intended, but it might not have been made as clear in Scripture, that the sacraments evolve as the church lives, as the church responds to different situations. I suppose you could say, for example, um, as there are the ill who are uh, brought forward, uh, then 
the church, remembering uh, that Christ healed, remembering that uh, that Christ wanted healing to continue, then begin praying over the ill and anointing them, and we find a reference to that in the letter to James. Okay, so he says that Christ instituted Christian initiation. Okay, uh, namely, what's that? Baptism, but also confirmation. He says, this is Rahner, that the institution does not increase because baptism and confirmation are later separate. In other words, that in the beginning, the two sacraments seem to one simply flow into the other because later on we celebrate them separately and think of them as two sacraments. That doesn't mean that in the beginning there was less and then later on there are more. I mean, the point is, these rites bring about this incorporation of Christ and this grace. Just because later on the church separates them doesn't mean that somehow there's more grace coming uh, later on than before. Uh, he wonders about, uh, you know, the direct institution of Christ in terms of holy orders. You know, where do you see in the scriptures holy orders? Uh, instituted by Christ. Uh, confirmation. Yeah. Uh, anointing. Um, marriage. Okay. So Rahner sees the church somehow as, uh, as determining. He says this. The church decides which are sacraments. Remember I told you that it took a while for the church to determine which were the seven sacraments as opposed to which uh, rites might be helpful, disposing you to receive God's grace, and which rites, in fact, gave God's grace. Okay, And it took a while. It wasn't until um, the Middle Ages that Peter Lombard, uh, Thomas Aquinas, rather definitively settled the question. Because earlier than that, it's, the fathers would have held for the seven sacraments, but they would have been open to many more sacraments, you see. Rahner says, the church decide which are sacraments by distinguishing those rites which apply the full sacramental force of the church. Okay, that some rites apply the full sacramental force of the church. In other words, uh, these are the rites that are the church as sacrament, uh, making Christ present under these signs, uh, bringing grace. Okay. Distinguishes uh, which are those that apply the full sacramental force of the church to the salvific situation of an individual. Okay, that somehow they apply the sacramental uh, life of the church uh, in helping to bring about a person's salvation, helping them grow in salvation in critical life situations. So the salvific situation of the individual in critical life situations, birth, death, life. We're going to see how, for example, Thomas Aquinas uh, is going to use th that principle somewhat. Okay. Now, Schillebeck's early Schillebecks, and it's important to note uh, that Schillebecks has gotten into uh, difficulty uh, with the Holy See on some of his opinions, particularly it was they were um, came forth in a volume he wrote on the priesthood 
I published, I don't know, about 10 or 15 years ago called Ministry. But the most important textbook on sacramental theology, the most important book, is called Christ, the Sacrament of the Encounter with God. And uh, it's written by Schillebex, who was written, um, I think, in the early 60s. And um, all modern sacramental theology uh, is very much influenced by this book. Uh, in it, he tried to uh, look at the scriptures and the fathers of the church, and especially St. Thomas Aquinas, and take those uh, uh, principles and cast uh, it all in a somewhat more uh, personalistic uh, encounter model, one-on-one, -on -one, somehow uh, meeting Jesus in these uh, sacramental celebrations. Okay, So that is still a kind of key book. And... Um, Utterly orthodox, later Schillebex um, raises some interesting theories and perhaps doesn't always handle them too well, but this is a, this is a key book. He, he doesn't agree with Rahner. Uh, he rejects just the fact that there's a seven-fold uh, sacramental grace. Uh, why? He says, well, it's pretty clear uh, that some sacraments were clearly instituted by Christ. We find them in the scriptures. Baptism, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, receive the Holy Spirit for penance. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Okay, that's pretty clear. Um, the Eucharist, do this in memory of me, but might that not also, that command to the twelve, might that not also be holy orders? It's kind of interesting that um, Holy Thursday is always considered uh, the day of the institution of the priesthood. Well, in what? Well, do this in memory of me, it would seem. So what Schillebex is saying, uh, that some are pretty clear. Uh, confirmation, he follows St. Thomas in saying, well, he promised to send the Holy Spirit who would lead them to all truth. And then you have the Pentecost event, okay? So that consequently, what Schillebex is saying is, that there are some that are very clear. Others evolve by Christ's implicit will. In other words, he taught them, but we don't find in Scripture the precise reference of instituting them, but nonetheless, it is very clear. Uh, I would like to, uh, just briefly, uh, and you can uh, jot these references down if you want as we go through, um, I'd like to just spend a minute looking at the sacraments in Scripture. I think it's very important, especially in today's uh, world when uh, many uh, Protestant fundamentalists are accusing Catholics of having somehow uh, read into Scripture um, all sorts of things that don't exist. You know, sometimes they sort of say uh, that you're kind of hung up on your traditions, uh, your traditions stand in the way of the pure word of God, uh, but the point is, these traditions actually are in the pure word of God. Okay, So, jot down whatever you'd like. Uh, for baptism, uh, we have, first of all, uh, in John, John 3, his conversation with Nicodemus. And that basically he talks about being born again of water and the Spirit. Not just water, not just the Spirit, but water and the Spirit. Um, some say that the Greek, a more technical Greek translation, that rather than again, would be born from on high. 
My Greek isn't that good, actually, but uh, I have heard that said. Um, Also, there are the synoptic accounts of the Lord's own baptism by John. Uh, Matthew 3, Mark 1, and Luke 3. Now, the fathers of the church puzzling over the fact that Jesus himself was all sinless, how could he be purified in the water of the Jordan? He couldn't. But their whole idea was that when he went down into the waters, he purified the waters. He gives the Holy Spirit to the waters so that henceforth the waters can be vehicle of the Holy Spirit. You and I can get baptized now, and the Holy Spirit can be given instrumentally through this water because Jesus now in his baptism empowers the water. Or uh, Matthew uh, 28:18 and the end of Mark as well. Uh, go forth, uh, baptizing, uh, t- uh, preaching to all nations, um, uh, and baptizing the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Those who believe and are baptized will be saved, those who are not will be condemned. Okay, we'll have to talk about that when we talk about the necessity of baptism. Or, uh, Romans 6, um, when we were baptized, we died with Christ, uh, and as he was raised, uh, we have been raised up with him. Uh, That's a kind of interesting uh, uh, text because it shows something of uh, the normal way that Christians were baptized in the early church. They were immersed. And their whole idea was that that immersion showed something about what was going on. You go down into the watery grave. Baptism brings life, but doesn't it also bring death, floods, people drowned at sea? So, you go down in the water, and that's symbolizing me dying to the old sinful Giles, who always wants his way, temper tantrums, and then coming up in the new man, raised in Christ, okay? So that St. Paul equates baptism with death and resurrection, dying to the old, rising to the new, new life, okay? Uh, And of course, we know how in the early church that was shown by the neophytes put on white robes, and they wore them for a whole week, from Easter until the Sunday after Easter, that traditionally has been called Low Sunday, but in Latin, the official title, title, Dominica in Albis. Why? It was Sunday in white robes. They wore white robes for a whole week, and at the end of that Sunday, they took them off. Okay. So, uh, St. Paul's understanding of baptism. Or Ephesians 5. Uh, this is also uh, where you find a locus for marriage. But Christ, speaking of the church, says St. Paul, made her clean by washing her in water with a form of words, so that when he took her to himself, so Christ is washing the church clean with water and a form of words. Okay, well, baptizing, name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, so that when he took her to himself, she would be glorious with no spot or wrinkle, but holy and faultless. Okay, so the church... Now, what about confirmation? Okay, well, uh, after Pentecost, the apostles go out 
uh, they suddenly become brave and courageous, these uh, uh, macho uh, men who were cowering uh, in the upper room who needed Our Lady, a uh, strong Jewish mother, to teach them how to pray and pull them together. Uh, and they persevered in prayer, says the Acts of the Apostles, with Mary, the mother of Jesus. But anyway, then the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and then they change, and they go forth even at the, uh, the ninth hour, and people are amazed at the power, and they kind of attribute it to having too much to drink. And uh, they uh, preach. Uh, Peter gives the basic kerygma uh, that this Jesus uh, whom you killed, um, this Jesus has been raised on high uh, by the Father, and in him you can have forgiveness of your sins. And so... They, the people who had gathered, remember, the people came back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. All of the Jews, or many of the Jews in the Diaspora, all over the civilized world. They spoke many different tongues. They came back. Uh, they all couldn't understand Aramaic, which is probably what Peter was speaking. But uh, the gift of tongues there seemed to have been that Peter spoke in his own language, and all these different people heard in their own languages. And then they cut to the quick, says, well, what shall we do? And what does Peter say? Okay. He says, you must repent, every one of you, and you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to come back to that passage because what does that perhaps suggest? Two motions in baptism. You must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Is he also alluding to confirmation there? Maybe. A kind of double movement. Now, uh, in Acts 8, 14, we have Peter and John being sent to Samaria. Um, so that, anyway, what I'm suggesting is that in Acts 2, uh, we have uh, maybe a reference to baptism, but also maybe a reference to confirmation. Uh, in Acts uh, 8, when Peter and John are sent to Samaria, and prayed for the Holy Spirit over the Samaritans because they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, well that's key, isn't it? Only. In other words, somehow there's a completion of the sacrament of, of baptism that hasn't yet been given. Or in Acts 10, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and his household, so how could they be refused baptism? Now that's a little tricky. You've got the Holy Spirit falling upon the whole household, and they've not even been baptized, which suggests that the Holy Spirit's free to do what the Holy Spirit wants to. And that's not the ordinary way. St. Peter wants to baptize them, and rightly so. Kind of saying, well, if the Holy Spirit has already fallen upon them, hey, we better uh, bring them into the church. You know, and, of course, that's accomplished through baptism. All right. Or in Acts um, 19, and all of these are uh, incidentally quoted by Pope Paul VI in his introduction to the new rite of confirmation. Okay. Uh, Acts 19, um, in Ephesus, there were a number of John's disciples who didn't realize that there was a Holy Spirit. See? So they were John the Baptist's disciples, and they had a pretty incomplete notion of Christianity. So what happens is, uh, that they were therefore baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, Paul laid hands upon them, and then the Holy Spirit uh, was given them, and that was seen by the gift of tongues they received and the gift of prophecy, which seemed to be kind of tangible 
evidence is that in fact they'd received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that consequently they've only gotten John's baptism. John's baptism is just a kind of a purification, uh, something for repentance. Uh, and they're explained uh, who Jesus is, what his teaching is. They're baptized um, in his name and then hands are laid upon them for the giving of the spirit. Okay, so that we find a reference in scripture to some further action that somehow completes baptism and gives the fullness of the spirit. Finally, uh, uh, well, in terms of Christian initiation, uh, the Eucharist, the institution. Take and eat, this is my body. Take and drink, this is my blood. Uh, and the Last Supper, and we find that in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. Now, John's kind of curious, isn't it? John doesn't have uh, the words of institution, the words of consecration at all. He omits it completely. Does that mean that John doesn't believe in the Eucharist? What do you suppose is going on there? How come John doesn't have the institution of the Eucharist? It's so well known, and he's got his clear teaching in the sixth chapter um, about unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. That's pretty clear. Okay, so he's got that. Um, and he kind of presupposes that they all know um, about uh, the Eucharist. What does he talk about at the Last Supper? What does he have Jesus do at the Last Supper? Does he say anything? Unity. If you want to use Thomistic terms, the terms of St. Thomas, he presupposes the institution of the Eucharist. He presupposes uh, the res sacramentum or the ecclesial effect. He presupposes that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. And he doesn't talk about that. He presupposes they all know that. So what does he talk about? He talks about the res. He talks about the religious effect, the deepest reality that through receiving the body and blood of the Lord, what? We're all made one. We're all unified. And that's what he talks about. Okay, so it's not that John ignores that, he presupposes they all know about that, and he talks about the deeper effect of the Eucharist. Okay, well, what about penance? John 20, 23. Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven, whose sins you shall receive, they uh, retain, they are retained. Uh, this is basically... Uh, um, basically the night of the resurrection in John. Uh, the Lord, filled with the Spirit, breathes the Holy Spirit upon them for the forgiveness of sin, the twelve. Uh, in Matthew, in 16 and 18, you have those words of binding and loosing, which was rabbinical language, but which the Lord is saying that the apostles have the authority, whatever they bind on earth, in terms of church discipline, in terms of morality, that basically that finds an echo in heaven. So people who kind of say, you know, well, I know what the church says, but I personally think, and it seems to me that, uh, well, the Lord gave the impression that uh, the church has something to say about the afterlife and how heaven looks at morality, uh, that the church has the right to bind and to loose. Okay, orders, holy orders. Well, we've already talked about whether or not it's contained in Do This of Memory of Me. First Timothy 4, uh, stir up the gift within you uh, that you have received from the laying on of hands. Okay, 
uh, Timothy received a gift through the laying on of hands. Laying on of hands uh, was a way of setting someone aside for service, setting someone aside uh, for service of the Christian community, holy orders. Marriage, uh, Ephesians 5, um, this is a great mystery. Sometimes translated, this is a great sacrament. We talked about the fact that uh, the word sacramentum in Latin came to be to translate the word mysterion uh, in Greek. But I'm saying that it applies to Christ in the church. So St. Paul is saying this is a great mystery, the love of man and woman. And I say uh, that this refers principally to Christ in the church, that somehow just as man gives himself completely to his wife, and his wife receives him and gives herself completely to uh, her husband in return, that that is the continuing sign in holy wedlock among us of how Jesus gives himself completely to the church and the church responds in kind. Okay. Uh, finally, the anointing of the ill uh, in James uh, 5, uh, if there are ill... The ill send for the elders, the presbyteroi, the priest, anoint them with oil, the ill in the name of Jesus the Lord, and pray over them, and they will recover and their sins will be forgiven. Okay. So all of this little exercise is just primarily to make it very clear that uh, the sacraments, though it may not be clear precisely in Scripture when Christ instituted each one, that the sacraments are clearly all in Scripture. Okay. So, we must hold with Trent that there are seven sacraments and that they're all instituted by Christ. We can leave somewhat up in the air, whether directly or indirectly. It seems to me that um, Schillebex's uh, uh, understanding uh, is correct, namely that some are clearly instituted by Christ, at least we can uh, tell from the scriptures, and others perhaps may have been somewhat more uh, implicitly instituted by Christ. Uh, there's a very good statement in the Catechism. Uh, it's number 1117. As she has done for the canon of the sacred scripture, and for the doctrine of the faith. So, in other words, the church always believed in the uh, in the New Testament, but it took a while for the church to determine uh, which were absolutely authentically inspired and which other ones uh, were kind of apocryphal. Uh, they weren't really. They might have had a few elements of truth, but they also had uh, some strange notions. You know, like the little boy Jesus making little birds of clay and breathing on them and having them fly away and things like that. Uh, the church, it took a while for the church to distinguish which was clearly the New Testament and which was not. So, as she has done for the canon of the sacred scripture and for the doctrine of the faith, um, the church coming into deeper and deeper uh, truth, the church, by the power of the Spirit, who guides her to all truth, has gradually recognized this treasure received from Christ, and as the faithful steward of God's mysteries, has determined its dispensation. Thus the church has discerned over the centuries that among the liturgical celebrations there are seven that in the strict sense of the term are sacraments instituted by the Lord. Okay. 
that's what we must hold, okay? That there are seven sacraments instituted by the Lord, but it may have taken the church some time to determine some of them explicitly as such because uh, some are more clearly uh, show forth the institution in the scripture than others, okay? But they would at least by Christ's implicit will, okay? I think, my own opinion is, that the Shilobekian theory, which uh, sort of leans more heavily on the scripture and more heavily on the clear institution of some, uh, makes more sense than this very generic uh, Ronarian theory. But what I just read to you from the Catechism is how the Church understands uh, this statement from the Council of Trent, uh, which uh, Catholics must hold. The seven sacraments are given to us. And what that means, in effect, is that in these seven sacraments, which are instituted by Christ, Christ acts. Christ is present, as we've been talking about. Okay? The last point that I want to make about this is that in talking uh, about uh, the sacraments, uh, Pope Pius Twelfth, in a document, Sacramentum Ordinis, in the reign of Pius Twelfth, there was a question. What's the essential right of ordaining priests to the priesthood? Okay? There is a point, and you will see it if you go to an ordination, that the priest-to-be is given uh, a chalice and a paten. A paten is a little uh, sort of dish in which the host or hosts normally rest. Okay, And uh, he is given them, and the, pre uh, the bishop offers that and tells the priest uh, to offer sacrifice, yeah. that he's commissioned to offer sacrifice. Now, the question is, was uh, in the time of Pius XII, is that the essential right by where priests are made priests or men are made priests? Or is it the laying on of hands and um, there's a, a great long prayer that has the form, the literary form, liturgical form of a preface? You know what the preface is, that part of the Mass, the Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. Let's give thanks to the Lord our God is right to give thanks and praise. And then there's a nice long prayer that culminates in the Holy, Holy, Holy. Okay. Well, it's a prayer like that, but it's not at that time. It's a special prayer that the priest says after he lays, uh, the bishop says after he lays on hands, then he says this prayer. Pius Twelfth was posed the question, which of those two signs is the actual giving of the grace of the Holy Spirit uh, to have a priest uh, do this in memory of me. That's the question. Okay. Now, we're not surprised that he said it was the laying on of hands in the prayer, because the laying on of hands is a scriptural gesture. This proffering of the chalice, uh, well, a very beautiful uh, rite, is something that developed later in the Middle Ages, and so we're not surprised at his answer. But what's more important is in that he distinguishes between the substance of the sacrament versus the form it may have assumed. In other words, when we talk about uh, 
Christ instituting the sacraments, we're talking about the core of the sacrament. We're talking about uh, the, the idea. We're talking about um, what the sacrament is supposed to do. Uh, we may be talking about explicit words. Uh, we uh, are probably talking about basic elements. I mean, for example, uh, we're talking about baptism, we're talking about water, we're talking about Eucharist, we're talking about bread and wine. But he distinguishes that from the form. And what he's saying is that you can talk about the basic sacrament, but in the course of history, the forms, the rites, one of the problems with some Lefevrians is that they tend to recognize very little the possibility of liturgical change. Almost as if Christ celebrated uh, the Last Supper as a Tridentine Mass in Latin. Now, I don't mean to make fun of them because that's not, they don't hold that, but it's almost as if they think that everything was sort of timeless and eternal what the Mass is as sacrifice and meal, uh, sacrament and sacrifice, that reality is, but how it's celebrated in the course of the centuries has changed. You know, and the Church, therefore, a corollary of this is that the Church has the right to change the form of the sacraments, but not the substance. People who are arguing for the ordination of women are saying that being a man or a woman is not a change in the substance. Okay? You're just ordaining somebody human. The Pope seems to be saying it would be a change in the substance because it's not just a human being, but rather it must be a man. Okay? Um, not too long ago, I don't sort of agree with this in a way, but they never consult me. Uh, they determined uh, in Rome that uh, oil, holy oil, uh, to be consecrated, to be chrism, to be the oil of the sick, to be oil of catechumens, need no longer simply be olive oil, but any vegetable oil will do. And now, during Holy Week, outside chancery offices, you will find discarded bottles of mazola. You see, corn oil. Well, my opinion, that's rather corny, uh, but the church has the right to say that oil is what is needed, that the olive is uh, not terribly important. However, the church also says that because of the association, the bread has to be wheaten bread. That uh, uh, oatmeal will not do. Okay. So the substance may not be tampered with, but the form can change. The words can change if the church so determines. Can't change the scriptural words, but the uh, uh, formula for confirmation uh, has changed, as we shall see. Okay. So the church decides what the, the signs are uh, taken from Scripture. Uh, that it cannot change, but it can change the words if they are not scriptural. Uh, it, can, uh, it can change the form if it is not the substance. 
It also, a recent decision was that people who are allergic to wheat may get special permission to receive bread in which uh, a certain amount, Eucharistic bread, in which a certain amount of the gluten uh, is removed. But I don't believe it's all of it because they wanted enough in there to st somehow still have the, uh, what's the word I want, um, the reality of Wheaton bread. This has been Franciscan University of Steubenville's Distance Education Program, a series of lectures bringing the classroom to you. Join us again next week for another lecture on the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church with your professor, Father Giles Dimmick. For more information on Franciscan University of Steubenville's Distance Education Program, call 1-800-446-8336. Or from outside of the United States, call 614-283-6517. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, because he hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaid. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done great things to me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is from generation unto generation to them that fear him. He hath shown might with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the conceit of their heart. He has put down the mighty from their seat, and has exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has received Israel his servant, being mindful of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Amen.